right, well, I invite you to remain standing as we turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and uh, if, you're, if you're able to stand, I should say, uh, we invite you to continue standing as we, as we read God's word together from, from um, Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the Olivet Discourse as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the text is also printed for you in your bulletins. And so let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Again, Matthew 24, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the great clouds of heaven in power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will, not pass, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. 
Pretty simple, right? Pretty easy. I'll be, I'll be honest with you, this is the hardest passage I've ever preached on. Uh, this is uh, one of the more difficult parts of the Bible. I think pretty easily this is the hardest passage in the New Testament. Full stop. Full stop. D.A. Carson, uh, one of, one of the, the great Bible interpreters of, of those who believe the Bible is the word of God, um, he, he says uh, there, there is more disagreement among interpreters on this very passage than any other passage. He calls it immensely complex, to which we say, amen and amen. It is, a, it is immensely complex. Jesus is acting as Israel's last and greatest prophet. You've heard me talk about that the last few weeks. Uh, on the one hand, he confronts Israel as a prophet. It's very confrontational. It's a word of judgment. Uh, but here he's taking up the mantle of a prophet that when we think of prophecy, we think of prophets, this kind of fits the mold of what we're talking about where it's, it's foretelling. He's talking about the future. He's saying look for these things. He becomes apocalyptic. The word apocalyptic literally means unveiling. It literally means we are, we are cut off from some information and so the curtain is pulled back just a little bit and we have a glimpse. It's uncovered. It's unveiled. But this is complicated. There are chronological questions that we need to work through. Uh, we get glimpses of what, what seems like it's the end of the age, like the end of the end. But at the same time, Jesus says at one point, these things uh, will, will happen before this current generation passes away. Uh, not this generation, not our generation, but the generation of the 12 disciples he is talking to at that particular point in history. You have imminent events, meaning events that seem like they're just around the corner. You have events that seem like they are far off in the distant future because we would say that it seems like we're still waiting for some of these things to happen. We're to be looking for signs, but maybe also warned that there are no signs that we can expect that things will happen suddenly. There's a lot of disagreement on what Jesus is getting at. There's a lot of disagreement on the chronology on when these things are to happen or, or if some of these things have already happened. My only hope with you is not necessarily that you sign off on everything I will say this morning, uh, but really I, I, I think my, my expectation I hold out is that you would confess with me that this is a hard passage. This is a difficult passage. Okay, that's on, that's, that's on the one hand. But here, here's the other aspect and why we're going to keep going this morning. It's because while there are some difficult aspects of this passage, there are some specifics that are kind of hard to nail down. At the end of the day, I don't think the meaning of this passage is hard to understand at all. I don't think the application of the Olivet Discourse is, is really controversial. I think it's pretty much on the surface for us. Let me give a hint of what, what I mean by that. At the end of the day, Jesus is using the concerns of his disciples to teach important truths that every generation of Christians need to remember, that every generation of Christians tend to forget. What are those truths that we need to hear that we forget? Yet God is in control even when it doesn't feel like it. God is at work even when it doesn't look like it. God is doing a work in and through us. Maybe a, a, a final truth, but this is a beautiful truth to remember. If we could live out of this truth, and that one truth is God wins. Like in the end, God wins, and, and his victory graciously belongs to us. We are incorporated into that victory. So as we'll work through this passage, there's, there's three points for us to consider. Uh, we have a word of warning. That will be my longest point. I'm going to give you the warning right now. That will be the longest point because we have to go through this passage and try to get a, a handle on, on what's going on. Uh, secondly, we have a word of hope, and then we have a word of encouragement. And those two, hope and encouragement, I think those are the easy ones. Those are the ones that we need to walk away with encouraged and not discouraged 
by this passage. All right, so first of all, we have a word of warning. In order to understand the word of warning, we have to get a handle on the context. It's important to remember the Olivet Discourse didn't just plop out of, out of the sky. Uh, Jesus isn't just randomly talking about these difficult matters. There is an occasion for this teaching. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus in this final week of his life. This is Holy Week. This is Passion Week. Uh, Jesus has uh, come down as a pilgrim with his disciples. They live in the boondocks. They live in the north country in Galilee. They make the journey south to Jerusalem as religious pilgrims. They're there with so many other Jewish people to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And so Jesus has come, and in Matthew, it's it's, it's the first time that he comes to Jerusalem, and he comes with with a, a lot of words of judgment. Uh, of, of, of judging the, the religious authorities and the religious leaders. And so last week, it, it kind of comes to a culmination. He pronounces seven woes of judgment over Jerusalem, seven woes of judgment on the religious leaders and authorities. He says, your house, the temple, is left desolate. In other words, the temple is God's house. The temple is where we go to meet with God, but God has left the building. That's a pretty big change. Now pick up our passage. That's what the disciples hear. God has left the building. Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples. Presumably they're walking up the Mount of Olives. They look back at the temple, and and the disciples are pointing out the buildings of the temple. They're they're tourists, right? They're pilgrims from the sticks. This is the greatest building they've ever seen in their life. It is the greatest building they will ever see in their life. Anyone in the region, it is the greatest spectacle they've ever seen with their eyes. I think it's possible that like Roman soldiers would come on duty into Jerusalem, and it's the best building they've ever seen too, and they have the Colosseum. There were instructions when the temple was destroyed that it was not to be destroyed because Rome thought it was probably one of the best buildings they'd ever seen. And so the rumor was that it accidentally caught on fire and then they just took it out altogether. But for most of humanity at the time in that general region, this is the greatest thing they could ever set their eyes on. You would come down the mountain and you would see this giant, beautiful, white marble structure with a gold dome that would reflect the sunlight. I know that we live in the age of Las Vegas. It takes a lot for us to be impressed. But can you imagine if all you see is tan? If all you see is brown? If all you see is dirt? We can't imagine that. Just look outside. Uh, And then here is this spectacular structure. And they say, maybe Jesus, have you flippantly pronounced judgment on this impressive thing? Maybe you're overdoing it a little bit. Spectacle that would blow the mind of anyone. The eighth wonder of the ancient world is what they considered Herod's temple. And Jesus gets next to his disciples, presumably, looks out with them and he says, yeah, you see all those, right? Because I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In verse 3, they they sit on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him. They've been processing all of this. This might be the most shocking thing that Jesus has said. And so they say, okay, so tell us when these things will be, when the Jerusalem temple, when the the stones will not be upon one another. Uh, Tell us when those things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Do you hear the assumption of the disciples? That's key. When will the temple be destroyed? And then what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? In the disciples' minds, they're saying the destruction of the temple, and this is very understandable to them, that would be such a cataclysmic event that it must certainly be the end of the whole world. That will be the sign of your coming. So Jesus answers the question in an undeniably complicated way, but why does he do that? 
think the purpose of it is to upend the disciples' assumption, which is dead wrong. The end of the temple does not mean the end of the world. And yet, he takes a step back and he uses the fall of Jerusalem, something so cataclysmic on on a local scale, on a small scale, and that will paint a picture of end-time judgment. So he's doing two things. He's separating them. They are separate events, but at the same time, let's use that localized event to understand the final judgment over the whole cosmos. The speech of Jesus paints a picture of the already and not yet understanding of the world. Already or soon, much will be fulfilled when Jerusalem falls, but there's a not yet, the future element when Jesus returns in power and glory. So again, Jesus is addressing the misconception of his disciples. They ask, when will these things be? When will the temple be no more? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus addresses the second question first. Here are the signs. And it's a word of warning. Basically, he says, fear not. This is what the world will be like until I come again. The first warning for Christians in every generation, as, as long as Jesus has not returned, is don't be tricked. Don't be tricked. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Many will come in the name of Jesus. Calm down. Stick with me. Don't follow them. Many will come saying, nah, I'm the Messiah. Ignore them too. Don't be led astray by them. Don't depart from my word. Hold fast to me. We might say, just a few years after this time, hold fast to the cross. Any access to God, any understanding of Jesus, any understanding of God's power and glory that is removed from the cross. And that's usually the greatest kind of heresy. That's the first insight into heresy is that we want, we want salvation by glory. It's not the way of the cross. And so, so hold fast to Jesus. Stick with me. Don't be tricked. Second warning. This is a bit controversial. Don't be a sign watcher. Don't be a sign watcher. On the one hand, I just said Jesus is using apocalyptic language and imagery, but if you take a step back, isn't Jesus being like disappointingly anti-apocalyptic? Jesus is like, I'm going to pull back the curtain, here are the signs, and then we look at them and we're like, oh, that just looks like the world. That just looks like the ordinary, normal chaos of the world that we live in. So Jesus says, you want to know the signs? Uh, There will be wars and rumors of wars. Okay, well, there already are. There will continue to be. But Jesus says, see to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, and there will be earthquakes. What are those signs of? Not when Jesus is returning, but that he will return. I know that many of you uh, come out of traditions where where, uh, we were taught to read the Bible in one hand and and have the newspaper in, in the other. And I think Jesus is saying, that is a bad idea. I'll never forget in my own life, and if maybe you've had your own experiences of this, but I remember being in college and uh, being in a bookstore, and there was a book about prophecy. It had the title Babylon in it with lots of lightning and lots of fire. And there on the cover, uh, taking up basically the, 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 the biggest space, was the face of Saddam Hussein. I have no problem stating publicly before you that that was a wicked, evil man. He is barely a footnote to world history in 2021. Don't read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another. How does Jesus put that? Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Don't look at the signs. 
Now skip to verse 15. Okay, those are the signs of when Jesus will return. But now at verse 15, he goes from the big cosmic picture, he zooms in, and he brings us to a different picture of cataclysmic judgment embodied in the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And this will happen in A.D. 70, A.D. 66 to A.D. 70. I think these things were already fulfilled. He goes back to the disciples' first question, right? Uh, when, what will be the sign of these things? And Jesus says, sure, let's talk about the signs of those things. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, basically, when you see that which is detestable to God, when you see pagan worship and idolatry happening in the holy place of God, what are you supposed to do? You start running. You start running. All right, so during Israel's exile, Israel goes to exile 583, or the southern kingdom is 583 BC. So many generations before the time of Jesus, you have Daniel of Daniel and the Lion's Den fame. Uh, he's a prophet, and he, he, he gives this prophecy that after the exile, Israel would return, and there would be a time when there is an anointed one, Jesus, who would be cut off. And at some point during this time, uh, an abomination would happen in the temple and the temple would be deserted and the sacrifices would cease. And Jesus says, this desolation is coming and it would come about three decades later. In the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, here's the abomination of desolation. And he says, when armies circle Jerusalem, that's the abomination of desolation. And so what happens? You start running when you see the signs of the abomination of desolation. If you're on top of your house, don't go back inside to get your belongings. You start running. If you're out in the field, don't go get your jacket. You just keep going. Oh, just think of the women who are pregnant and who are nursing. Pray that the weather's good when this happens. Pray that it's not the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And I'm telling you, he is talking about the fall of the temple three decades later. How is it, that's the hard question, how is it that nothing worse has happened or will happen? It is the end of a holy nation and kingdom of priests. God's people, holy nation, done. Temple destroyed. The nation of Israel gone and will never come back. The, 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 the current state of Israel, 1948, it's just a secular geopolitical kingdom. It is not a holy nation and kingdom of priests. Has anything worse happened? Well, nothing worse can happen to God's people. Uh, just think of the Old Testament promise, or, or prophets who say, you're going to go into exile, but here's this return. And Jesus is the late prophet, the last prophet, the great prophet says, you're done and it's over. Nothing worse can happen because the kingdom is done. This is national Israel's darkest hour. They have been dispersed through the whole world, never to be returned as God's holy nation and kingdom of priests. Israel's darkest hour. The Jewish historian Josephus describes the siege in harrowing terms. He estimates 1.1 million died in the slaughter. He's probably wrong. That's a little bit high just in terms of general population models. Maybe 100,000 were enslaved. At the same time they are being sieged by Rome, there's a famine in the land, and so Rome cuts off food supplies, and so Josephus reports that many turned to cannibalism. Nothing before or after, nothing as bad has happened to national Israel because it's over and this is final. How could there be worse? And so Jesus disassociates the end of the temple with the end of the world. 
When the temple is destroyed, don't go looking for the Messiah to come back as if it's the same event. You will know when I return, Jesus says. However, if anyone says to you, here's the Christ, you don't believe it. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead people astray. And then verse 25, if they say to you, look in the wilderness, there's the Messiah, don't listen to him, don't go out there. If they say, no, he's in the inner room, you don't believe it, why not? Because Jesus says, when I do return, you're gonna know I'm returning. Because as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, we are in the tribulation of those days. We have wars and rumors of wars and famines and we have earthquakes and we have reports coming from the Afghan church that the Taliban is now threatening to destroy them. We are in the last days. What else are we waiting for? And Jesus says, make no mistake, you will know when I come back. Because Jesus will not come back secretly, but in a way where Kim Riddlebarger puts this beautifully, the whole creation will convulse when Jesus returns. And the elect will be gathered from every nook and cranny of the planet. And Jesus has just spoken to all generations. And then he looks to that first generation, his disciples, in verse 32 and 34, and he returns and he says, we know summer is near because the temple's desolate. And truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Could you keep up a little bit? I mean, it's hard. It's hard. Heavy lifting. I know. It's really, really heavy lifting. Uh, I don't know if every question is answered neatly. I think it's a hard text, and hard texts are hard texts. It upholds the imminent judgment, right? This generation will see things, and yet we're sitting here going, well, we're still waiting, aren't we? It's 2,000 years later. So what do we do with this? The last two points, hopefully, are are much clearer, even if we can maybe just absorb what Jesus is doing here. Uh, And that is Jesus does give us a word of hope and a word of encouragement. All right, first of all, a word of hope. I mean, the disciples are concerned, understandably, right? Where where do we meet with God on this planet, and the answer is the Jerusalem temple. We know he's there. We know he meets with us. And so if the stones that make up this gorgeous house aren't even left standing, like that can't be a good thing. If the end of the age is just around the corner, they mistakenly think, what do we do with that information? Well, we uh, correctly know that the end of the world is still to come. It may be just around the corner. And so Jesus communicates, yes, there will be trials and tribulations. Uh, Not only that, but there will be things happening in this world that will make you think the end is near. It will make you say, God, time can't go on much longer. And what's sobering is that every generation of the church says the exact same thing. It's one of the reasons we study church history. Is it as important as knowing your Bible? Of course it's not as important as knowing your Bible, but you get to see every generation of the church say, surely this is the end. And Jesus' voice is there saying, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Even amidst difficult events, God's people can know that God is in charge. All of these are the beginnings of birth pains. Such a powerful image, right? Every time we experience the brokenness and suffering and sin of this world, it is like a contraction. And one day those contractions will all come to fruition and new life will be birthed when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in full. 
Our hearts are rightfully hurting over the sin and brokenness of, of the world. We are rightfully, I think that's a reminder here, we're rightfully tired of the evil and wickedness of the world. There's another contraction. Uh, there's another moment of pain. And Jesus says, these birth pains will eventually result not in meaninglessness, but in everything finding its meaning in Jesus' return when he makes all things new. And so what does this mean for us as we live in this world of birth pains? Here's a really hard application. In times of crisis, followers of Jesus should be the most level-headed people there are. Don't be alarmed. I mean, think of the psalmist who says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. I'm not there, but I'd like to be. <laughs> though a war breaks out against me, I will be confident. It's not because he's naive but because behind the chaos, we know there is a God who turns beauty to ashes and shame to glory. The God in whose hands all things come together. To see the world through the lordship of Jesus is to live out of the reality that, that God in Jesus at the cross turned the most shameful, horrible, ugly thing you can imagine. The darkest day uh, in, the, in the history of this world, he turned that into the most beautiful, powerful, good this world has ever known. And we would say that's our only hope is in that ugliness that's really beautiful. To walk with Jesus in this world of trials and tribulations is to acknowledge uh, how easy it is and right to say in, in, the, in the good things that God is at work, in the joyful things God is at work, in the prosperity and abundance. We might even say it's harder to acknowledge God's reality in the good things. We would say, now God blesses us, he's there. But that is a, a, not quite the whole picture, is it? Because don't be alarmed at the darkness because that's also where God's found. Don't be alarmed at the pain and the trial because, man, that's also where God is found. That's where he shouts at us. It's not because suffering doesn't exist. It's not because we're supposed to push pain away. It's because that's where God works. It's where God is enough in our suffering. And we know he works in the darkness because that's what he did. That's what he did. He worked in the darkness. So our hope when we pick up the newspaper check our email, or we're kept up at night worrying about our jobs, our kids, our marriages. Our hope when we feel depressed and anxious is God is in charge. Our hope is that this life and this world finds its meaning in him. Like, what is the end? What is, what is the goal of the entire creation? It's waiting for Jesus to come in the clouds of heaven. Clouds in the Old Testament, those were the vehicles of God. And Jesus says, let me get on that vehicle. You'll see me in power and glory, but in the meantime, we wait and we hold fast to his word. He comes in power and glory, and so uh, that, that makes me think uh, of how Jesus taught us to pray in this time of hard waiting. Your kingdom come and your will be done, which maybe uh, is a request where we are reminded constantly that his kingdom is not here in full, and that his will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done even here and now in this world and in our lives because our hope is the hope of the world that he will come in power and glory. That's our great hope. So there's a word of warning, but don't be alarmed. A word of hope, God is in control. He knows the end from the beginning. God wins. And then finally, this passage gives us a word of encouragement. Two ways Jesus encourages us. First of all, he tells his disciples, he tells his followers that they will endure. 
This encouragement is at the end of a hard word, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for not my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, you know, I obviously haven't had time to go into all of the different uh, interpretations of Matthew 24, but uh, uh, so, so many other interpretations say, no, this is all one event. And, and here's a good indication it's more than one event because you have this idea that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are saying, I am willing to die for my Lord and Savior. And yet, what does Jesus say about the destruction of the temple? Don't die for it, start running. Start running. You start seeing the abomination of desolation, you better hope that you have your cloak. You just get on the road and start going. He doesn't say the same thing about being a follower of him. It's not when they come for you because you profess faith in Christ Jesus, your Lord, that you need to start running. It's that it will happen. You will be handed over for tribulation and trial. And I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting insight of how we can see these two distinct realities. But don't die for the temple, Jesus says. It's desolate. It's desolate. Now, in fairness, this sounds like a warning, not an encouragement, right? Uh, but I, I disagree, this idea of endurance, because it's not, nor has it ever been, salvation by endurance. It's salvation by a faith that endures. It's, it's salvation by a faith that is real. It's a faith that goes all the way, and, and the consistent message of the scriptures is that you and I, in our own strength, uh, cannot pull that off. And before you accuse me of softening what Jesus is saying, uh, it's reminding us that because we can't produce such endurance that Jesus' work isn't done on the Mount of Olives, is it? His work has to go to a different mountain, Skull Mountain, when he goes to the cross. Setting Judas aside, who hated God, I think we can say. Judas hated Jesus. He did not love Jesus. Setting Judas Iscariot aside, uh, we have one out of the 11 before him asking these urgent questions. He denied him three times. That's Peter. One refused to believe he was anything but dead. That was Thomas. And I think we have good reason to think that the other nine weren't in tremendously better places. But all were kept by Jesus because he loved them and purchased them at the cost of his own blood. And friends, that's all you and I have. How does faith go all the way? God keeps you. Faith is not a report card that we bring to God. Faith is not just an alternative work. Uh, God doesn't say, you'll never produce enough love, but I'll accept your faith uh, in return. That is, that is not Christianity, whatever that vision is. He says, you'll never love enough, and so let me provide one who does and just fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on him. We will never be enough in ourselves, but there is one who is and wonder of wonders, in him we are more than enough. The apple of God's eye. Think of Paul in 2 Timothy 2. If we died with him, oh, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. If you belong to Christ, you will endure amidst a world that at times feels chaotic and tragic. And so it is an encouragement because if you belong to Jesus, there is a steadiness and resolve that will see you through even when the world around you goes nuts and you see those around you lose poise. You see those around you lose faith. If you've been a Christian long enough, you have seen those who you thought with all of your heart they were Christians, they have, they have fallen away. Or you'll see people lose hope. And here's what's interesting. What, what is the culmination of all of these losses? It's the loss of love. That's the culmination of loss. The love of many will grow cold, Jesus says. 
If the fate of, of, if the Christian fate of the world rests on you, if the destiny of the church rests on your shoulders, pretty soon love has to be replaced with insecurity, fear, and anger. But if God has the world, and if God has me, and if God has my children, and if God cares about me and this world and my children more than I can ever imagine, then I am finally free to be concerned with what God is concerned about. And Jesus says that is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And as I walk with Christ, I can serve those who God brings into my life to be his hands and feet. First encouragement is endurance. The second word of encouragement speaking of being the hands and feet of Jesus, is that Jesus lets us see in on what God is doing in these latter days. He is calling his people. He is saving sinners. Not only will Christ in all of his beauty and glory come, but in the meantime, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. Why have 2,000 years transpired uh, since Jesus said these words into now? More than 2,000 years. What is the answer? Jesus gives us the answer. The gospel is going out. The gospel is going forward. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. When Christ returns, he will call his elect from every nook and cranny of the earth. If you want a beautiful picture of the church in the age in between, take a look at verse 9. Jesus says, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And then look at verse 14. This is the good news of the kingdom. In all the world, it will be proclaimed as a testimony to whom? All nations. All nations, and then the end will come. God, what are you doing? I'm saving sinners. I'm calling my own. I'm at work making dry, dead bones come alive again by my word and spirit. This is a hard passage. Again, the last thing I would want to communicate uh, is, is that some people struggle to interpret it, but like, we're good. We got it figured out. So we do the hard work. We wrestle with these hard words that Jesus says, but I, I think the application, what this means for us is here for the taking. God sees the suffering. God sees the trials. God sees the tribulations of the world, and he is sovereign over them. He works in them. They will all be summarized. They will all be summed up in him. They will, be, uh, they, they will, they will make sense in him. I think about the, the picture in, in Revelation 5 where you have the scroll, right? The scroll where whatever is in that scroll seems to be like just life itself and all of the, the suffering and trials. I mean, all of heaven in this alarming scene is weeping because there is no one to open the scroll and then finally the lamb can open the scroll. All of suffering, all of trials summarized in the one who can open the scroll and make sense of them. The whole creation convulsing at his return in power and glory so what do we do now? We endure. We hold fast to Jesus and we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we, we profess a, uh, a humility in coming before this, this challenging word. Uh, Holy Spirit, we, we, we must also have the confidence that you will lead us into all truth. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us into all truth, that you would keep us hanging on, closed, uh, clinging to Jesus. Lord, as we live in a world that, that registers with what 
Jesus spoke of, a world of, of great suffering and trials and tribulation, a world of wars and rumors of wars, a, a, a world of, of natural disasters, as all of us can, uh, can see the birth pains in ways that this first generation could never imagine, just because of the media, we have access to the birth pains of the world. And so, Lord, give us faith uh, to remember and to believe that the world is in your hands, good hands, loving hands, just hands. Lord, build up our faith through the word and and through the sacraments, through the gifts that you have given us, uh, that we would uh, grab hold of, of your word and your promises and believe them and know them. Lord, help us to Uh, live in a way that is always before the face of God, that we know that is uh, not just the truth, but it's the truth that we live out of. We grasp hold of it and help us to love our neighbors, uh, the people that you bring into our lives uh, as, as those who are steady, as those who are calm, as those who can bring our anxieties and worries to you, knowing that you not only know all things, uh, but all things will be worked out uh, in your goodness and grace. Lord, help us to believe this, even in the world we live in. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.